Thank you. Welcome to this informal meeting for members of 12-step fellowships who are interested in recovery through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Alastair and I'm an alcoholic. To set the tone for the meeting, I'll read an extract from the preface of uh, the big book. Because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left largely untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third and fourth editions. The section called The Doctor's Opinion has been kept intact, just as it was originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. At tonight's workshop, we will start on page XXVII in the fourth edition uh, with a paragraph starting many years ago and uh, Tim will work through the through the text paragraph by paragraph pausing for questions when the time comes for questions this can be done by the raised hand function in zoom or you can message me through the chat function and I will ask Tim directly we'll try to close around the hour mark and with that I will now hand over to Tim There we go. So uh, my name's Tim. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, good to see everyone here. Um, so we are starting in the middle of this chapter, unfortunately. Uh, let me just get the call. There we go. Um, I'm not going to recap the points from last week because I was thinking about doing so, but I realised that all the main points actually get reiterated in this week's set of passages as well. So we're just as if you missed last week, you're, you're, you haven't really lost very much. So I'm just going to read. Um, I'll pause when something occurs to me to say. I'm not doing this in an academic way. I haven't prepared notes or anything. Uh, if you have a question, uh, just uh raise your hand i think i can see you can probably see oh yes i've got the participants thing so i can i can see if people have raised raise their hands right so many years ago one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital and while here he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men, as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has laboured long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Okay, so there's a lot in this paragraph. Um, we've got a couple of key principles of the program here. Unselfishness and the entire absence of profit motive, which is really a, an extension of the notion of selfishness. Uh, there's, there's an unfortunate phrase which does the rounds periodically in meetings sometimes about how this is a selfish program. And I understand the point people are making. I was at a, a meet, an AA meeting in Glasgow many lady said that uh, uh, you're of no good to anyone else if you're in a CNUT of a state yourself. Um, as that's true, you have to put your own um, uh, oxygen mask on first. So that's fine before helping other people. But uh, there's a, there's a uh, as I may have said last week, is that there's a habit sometimes of using language to obfuscate what we mean in AA. So sometimes when people want to say they've been sober many years, they say I've been sober a few days. And newcomers are supposed to guess that means many years. Uh, and it's the same with it's a selfish program. I think if one's going to convey that idea, it should be conveyed clearly that one has to 
Um, one can't transmit what one hasn't got. One, one's got to get a, at least a little bit of recovery under one's belt before one can go around carrying the message. But the main point here is unselfishness, absence of profit motive and community spirit. And now we've got a little bit of tradition one creeping in. Um, I, the, the phrase, one who has laboured long and wearily in this alcoholic field, I think that rings true for me as someone who attempts to sponsor people, because that can be long. And if you've ever sponsored people, you'll know that that can be long and weary work. And the trick is doing it in such a way that it's one has a lightness of touch, but that takes a long time to get. Um, of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. I think I said last week, this echoes a point from last week, about uh, you've got to have stopped the addictions, in the plural, I, I think, for, for any progress to be made. Uh, I don't know if it was last week, but I've certainly, over the last few days, talked to people about sponsees with eating disorders which are out of control and it's impossible to make progress unless the eating disorder is, is uh, being managed. We believe and so suggested a few years ago, uh, there is actually an earlier article, I don't have the link, but there are, there, there are earlier publications by Silkworth on alcoholism where he presents this idea. So uh, if you research the history, that's very available. We believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alco alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. To recap, the word allergy from last week means an abnormal reaction, a reaction which is different than other people. In plain English, it means that when I have a drink, I drink buckets of it, whereas my friends don't. That's the only, that's the allergy. Chronic as well uh, is, is one of those big book terms which is misunderstood. Uh, when people go to the doctors, the doctor says, oh, you've got, a, uh, I don't know, acute angina or you've got chronic this. Or, and, and people often take it, take both words to mean very bad. And of course, neither acute nor chronic means very bad. They're simply to do with time frame. Acute means, uh, uh, doctor friends tell me, something which is rapid onset or of short duration. And chronic means slow onset or of long duration. I asked a doctor once, what do you call long duration? More than six months. <laughs> Very interesting in this context. Sometimes people write off their alcoholism. So, well, I've only been drinking too much for a couple of years. That's enough. That's enough for it to be classed as chronic. Um, the action of alcohol in these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Now, this is a very important point. If you're the type of drinker who overshot every single time, as I pretty much did, uh, and or you've been drinking for, for donkey's years, this won't be a relevant point for yourself, but it may be for people that you sponsor. Uh, so if people have the fortune to get into AA fairly early, what they may discover is uh, that they worry. I'm not an alcoholic uh, because, well, I didn't get this craving business. I didn't overshoot every single time. And people start to list the situations when they didn't or the periods in which they didn't. This line is interesting. The phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Therefore, if you've got it at all, then welcome to AA. Um, one of the first women in AA, or certainly the most prominent early woman in AA, was a woman called Marty Mann, M-A-N-N. Very interesting character. Uh, she wasn't terribly fond of uh, Dr. Bob, but very much liked Dr. Bob's wife, apparently. She found Dr. Bob a bit of a stuffed shirt. Uh, anyway, Marty Mann wrote uh, uh, a simple test for this. And the test is this, and this is paraphrasing. The actual text is quite long. Every day for six months, at the same time, every day, 
you have one drink and then stop. You're not allowed not to have the drink, but you're not allowed to have more than the drink. And this must be applied, whatever happens. And she, she presents this endless list of adversities and celebrations and all sorts of situations which might justify drinking more than one drink. She said you absolutely mustn't exceed this even on those occasions. If you can do that every day for six months, then you're not an alcoholic. And of course, later on in the big book, it's going to say, if you're unsure if you're an alcoholic, step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. And it may be worth a good case for jitters to learn the true nature of your condition. Um, uh, I'm always hesitant to advise people to do that, but what I uh, do suggest to people who are struggling with this is to, to try the Marty Mann test, as it's called, as a mental experiment. So you do a mental walkthrough. Imagine what it would be like every day, 6 p.m., you have your finger of sherry, no more, but no less either. No less is important because often people can go for a few weeks without a drink. But you have that, like, if you're like me, you have one drink and you're off and that's the point. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And um, once having formed the habit, he doesn't, by the, by the way, he's not referring to alcohol swabs there when you have an injection. Some people get very peculiar about this. Um, uh, the, the, this does raise the thorny question, which I don't want to get bogged down in about alcohol in food. Uh, the principle I follow seems to work for me is if it's cooked off, it's fine. If someone's tipped a bit of, of uh, uh, cherry liqueur onto your black forest gatto, probably give it a miss. Um, but a stew which is cooked for a long time is usually all right. Anyway. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Um, it's a very curious thing. I've sponsored people. An awful lot of people seem to stumble on this passage their reliance upon things human their problems pile up and become astonishing astonishingly difficult to solve i think i treat this very much at face value keep it very simple and all it means is the ordinary um common sense and willpower that people normally use to manage the course of their lives i don't think it's more complicated than that i think that the the, the, the best approach to it as it were, interpreting, really understanding anything in the big book, is to take it at its plain meaning and not look for sort of hidden or complex meanings. Uh, Dr. Bob said that the big book is not open to interpretation. It just states what it seeks to state. I, I think that's largely and not entirely true. So I would take this at, the, at its face value. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. Now, there are two parts to this paragraph. The first part, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. Um, it's tr I think it's true. Um, but there's a there's a there's a, a terrible trap here, uh, which comes up in sponsorship, right? So when you're selling, as it were, uh, the idea or presenting, one shouldn't say selling. One, one's presenting the idea of recovery. There is depth and weight to it. The idea that we're not just keeping away from a drink one day at a time and crossing our fingers and huddling together and hoping for the best that we've got systematic methods of processing the past, of coming to terms with it through forgiveness and amends, uh, system, systems for, for 
handling group situations, systems for handling service and the concepts. We've got systems for handling anything, or at least helping people to get well enough to go and do whatever they need to do on the outside to, to solve particular problems. Um, so the programme is not a recipe for mindless Pollyannaism. It certainly does um, have depth and weight. But uh, one of the difficulties is this. There is a, a point in the programme for going into some of that depth in order to present what's going to come up in the future. But I've seen people come very, very unstuck. So they, they do all of this very deep investigation with lots of very complex questions in the middle of step one, in the middle of step two, in the middle of step three. And then they get to step four. And from step four to the end of step nine is, uh, it's not a marathon, but it's not a sprint either. It requires concentration, diligent daily work, and with a bit of luck and a following wind, uh, you can get through it in six weeks to three months. It's rare for it to be done that quickly, but it can be done. But what you don't want to do during that time is to, is to endlessly pour over the questions of depth and weight. One's got to get through the work. And people will shoot themselves in the foot. I did it shoot themselves in the foot by reopening again and again and again the big philosophical or psychological questions underpinning the whole program. When you're on the motorway, you don't want to sort of ask someone else to hold onto the steering wheel while you pivot yourself out of the window and start to look under the bonnet. You're going at 70 miles an hour. If you try and do that, you'll fly off the car and end up in a ditch. It's exactly what happens commonly. And so there comes a point where you just have to say to people, as people said to me, take the cotton wool out of your mouth, stick it in, well, no, which way around is it? Take the cotton wool out of your ears, that's right, stick it in your mouth or any other orifice which is causing difficulties and just get on with it. One day at a time, first things first, live and let live. So there is a, sometimes people in big book world can get very sniffy about the old, these old-fashioned old AA slogans, get to bed tonight without a drink. There is a place for all of those too. Um, I think a, an approach to recovery, which is all sort of depth and weight and intensity with no just sort of getting on with the day and lightness, but I, I, I think is as deadly as uh, the mindless Pollyannaism of, 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 you know, always look on the bright side of life. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they're to recreate their lives. That's going to be covering greater depth later on, so I won't dwell on it here. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line, see the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children, let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. Uh, can you not see he kind of needs an 100,000 Al-Anon meetings at this point? Unfortunately, they haven't been invented yet. Um, and the cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement that's been covered before now growing up among them. Oh God, this paragraph, yes, this causes some problems. Uh, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Now, uh, this is terribly important. This is that, that line, is a description not of alcoholics. It's a description of people. It's, I, and I think it's probably largely true to say, it's true for me, um, at the beginning of my drinking, that I, I drank because I liked it. So far, so good. However, um, the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, harmful, they cannot after a while differentiate the truth from the false. 
Now, what became true for me is that uh, I started to be uh, upset and distressed about the consequences. But also, I could be having a perfectly nice day and have a drink and have it go very, very dark and very bad indeed. I did not like that effect. Uh, I think I mentioned last week, there were times when I would be having a great time drunk and know that if I drank more, I would tip over into darkness. And I did not like that effect. And so certainly once alcoholism had me in its grips, I did not like the effect that alcohol was having on me, either the first drink or the later drinks. The first drink was no longer giving me the ease and comfort um, that it's later going to talk about. And so the truth of the situation, so this distinction between the true and the false, the truth was that number one, it was giving rise to horrible consequences. Number two, it was often, not having the desired effect. I see your question, Alistair. And thirdly, uh, the quantities I was drinking were taking into very dark places, but, but I couldn't see that in the moment before I had the first drink. And that's the key point at which the insanity occurs. It's the insanity which gets me to take the first drink. After that, some kind of mental and physiological process uh, takes hold and it's going to uh, someone's press play it's just going to play until the tape is finished uh alistair uh tim a uh, question from floor um and it's going back a little bit but a certain type of hard drinker this is in reference to page 20 certain yeah. type of hard drinker do such, uh, do such people not experience the craving? If not, why do they drink too much? Um, not being one, I can't answer from personal experience. Um, but I did have some friends at university that were very heavy drinkers. I remember one in particular, a chap called Rob. Now, I don't know if he went on to become an alcoholic, but his girlfriend, he used to drink a lot because he liked it too much for him meant, yeah, he had to suffer the consequences the next day, but it was a price that was worth paying. But the actual drinking vast quantities was, was always satisfactory to him. When his girlfriend said, I'm going to leave you if you carry on doing that, he stopped and he had no trouble stopping. And he didn't, it didn't, it didn't, it, it didn't cause many psychic difficulties. And the curious difference between me, I was racked with various degrees of torment the next day, whereas he just had a headache and felt a bit achy. We had a totally different psychological reaction to the consequences afterwards. It was a very curious thing. So I can't see, so you'll have to ask, you'll have to find some, the rare beast, the certain type of hard drinker. You'll have to pin one down maybe give them a couple of G&Ts and hope they'll tell the truth. But I can't speak for them. Um, one thing that I would say, I've only sponsored one person over the years who, um, when presented with this notion of the physical craving, said, no, I, she said, only ever overshot on purpose. And she would say it was to... Uh, uh, annoy her husband so when she went to have drinks with her friends uh, uh, in a fancy restaurant Marlborough High Street on a Saturday lunchtime she wouldn't drink too much when she was with her husband she would and I didn't know what to I said well I, I don't know you did, it doesn't sound like you drink like me if you're, do, if you're doing it on purpose then um, it's not like me and she decided, I think she went off into another different fellowship. And I, I don't know what, what happened. I was sort of prepared to carry on working with her. But I think she decided that AA wasn't for her. She didn't identify with the alcoholism uh, as it was presented. Only, there's only one person in, in 28 years, another possible question mark with, over someone else. But um, I was uh, running through a park in North London. I saw a tree 
with a little plaque um, with her name on it and a, and a date of birth and a date of death. And I looked up, looked, looked her up on, and see if there'd been anything in the local press. And it was rather a, a, an unpleasant affair, which was reported on widely in the local press. And there's a quotation uh, from, she died of alcoholism. Um, and there was a quotation from the, the because there was a public, um, uh, I don't know what the technical term is, there was a hearing with a coroner or something. And, and there's a quotation from the uh, doctor who, consultant who, under whose care she'd been at whatever hospital it was, saying, yes, yeah, she, she's suffered from alcoholism for years and she died of X, Y, and Z, and it was all alcohol related. So the only person I know in AA that fell into that category actually died of alcoholism. So I therefore don't know anyone in AA who, uh, who came to AA who turned out to accurately fall within that category. So I don't know how widespread the category really is. Anyway, um, back to this point. Sensation is so elusive, while they admit it is injurious, harmful, they cannot after a time differentiate the truth from the false. So the core of alcoholism is uh, delusion. Uh, people make a great play of the distinction between de denial and delusion, and I I'm not entirely sure there is one. Uh, I think, but delusion is a I find a helpful word. We're simply deluded. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. I identify with that. Um, uh, when I broke my own boundaries, I changed my boundaries. So I changed my understanding of what was normal and healthy to match my behavior because I couldn't bring my behavior in line with what was, uh, what was normal and healthy. They're restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. Two points. First one, um, I no longer had the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks at the end. I had a memory of the ease and comfort, which I hoped would come by taking a few drinks. Big difference. Um, Tom W. talks about a Canadian doctor in AA. I didn't do the Canadian doctor last week, Claire, did I? No, did I? No, I don't I think didn't. so. Okay. Uh, Tom quotes this Canadian doctor in, in AA, in, 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 I think in California, a French Canadian uh, who. You did it. Called yeah. Dr. Hmm? You, did, you did do it last week. Did I? Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm what the, 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 the doctor. Fun Gil. problem. Uh, oh, there fun, we go. <laughs> fun. Yo. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We did do it. Last it's week. not going nice. okay. to hurt either. Uh, but but the point is, it was only once my alcoholism was uh, problems, it was no more fun, that I was willing to uh, uh, to look at this. So that, that sense of ease and comfort, that's beginning stage and middle stage. After that, it's simply a memory of that. Now, the, the, the line which trips people up, they're restless, irritable and discontented unless they can, again, experience a sense of ease and comfort. Now, the reason this trips people up is first of all, uh, they will conclude, if I am not restless, irritable, and discontented, I'm therefore safe from the first drink. And that's a terrible trap. There's also a, an apparent, I don't think it is a contradiction, uh, there's an apparent contradiction to uh, a couple of stories in the later chapters. So Jim's story and Fred's story. In, uh, so Jim, we'll cover this obviously in greater depth when we get there. In Jim's story, Jim has a perfectly, Jim is doing okay and he's perfectly ordinary. He has a perfectly ordinary day and drinks. Uh, Fred is sensational and has a sensational day and drinks. Uh, the point being in both cases, the problem was the underlying spiritual unwellness, which hadn't been addressed. It was not manifesting on the surface. They very easily could have chosen endless examples of people that relapsed uh, in 
states of high dudgeon or umbrage, but they don't. They specifically choose Jim and Fred who relapse in a condition which to all appearances seems perfectly safe. So how do we reconcile these two? Um, in Fred's story, when he does get well, this is between 49 and uh, 39 and 43. When he finally does get well, he says, although my old life was by no means a bad one, I wouldn't exchange its best moments for the worst that I have now. So he's categorically risen to a higher level by recovering. Um, just a sec. So he's categorically risen to a higher level um, by recovering. Uh, sorry, uh, Simon, could you, uh, I'm having trouble muting you. Could you, there you go, great. Um, where was I? Sorry, I've lost my track slightly. Um, yeah. One needn't necessarily know that one is restless, irritable and discontented. It's as though alcohol scratches an itch which, or at least promises to scratch an itch, which is uh, sometimes very readily apparent and sometimes entirely out of sight. And that's what makes this so difficult. Um, in the letters, in the correspondence between Bill W. and Carl Jung from the 1960s, I think it's the 1960s, um, Jung says that what people are looking for in alcohol is at a low level, a substitute for God. So this is not about um, surface emotion. It's about alcohol fundamentally changing the percep one's perception of the universe and bringing one back into alignment with it, albeit temporarily and albeit illusorily. Uh, now, if one's out of alignment with the, with the universe, in, in almost every case, there's going to be restlessness, irritability and discontentment on the surface, but not necessarily. So especially in early days, one cannot conclude one is safe from drinking by virtue of not being restless, irritable and discontented. And the further point to that, it's very interesting, the state that Bill W is in on page 15 is far worse than the state Jim is in on page 35 or Fred is in on page 39. Bill W is restless, irritable and discontented, but does not relapse. They are none of those things, but they do. Why? Because he takes different action to treat that restlessness, irritability and discontentment, which he mercifully is aware of. And he goes and helps other alcoholics and he says, I felt amazingly lifted up. So if, if, if you spot a, an inconsistency between this passage and large parts of the big book, that, I, that's certainly one way of resolving it. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, again, what happens after the drink, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is little hope, very little hope of his recovery. Now, some important points here. Uh, if you're working with someone and they slip, you're just going to have to wait until they pass through the stages. You can't interrupt the process. You can't. There's nothing you can do to speed it up. It will take the time it takes. Uh, it's very interesting. It talks about a firm resolution. If you've worked with people who are very slippy, um, there's often a huge amount of remorse immediately afterwards with this firm resolution. Uh, it talks in this chapter uh, later on about the distinction between a resolution and a, deci a decision. And a resolution is uh, a very it, it's a it's an emotional commitment you feel very very strongly about it whereas a decision is a commitment to action you may or may not feel anything to do with it but you make the decision billy s from the isle of dogs which is not an isle but does have dogs 
Billy, Billy S. would say, commitment is the ability to continue taking action after the emotion which prompted the action has faded. And there's, apart from the well-known stages of the alcoholic spree, it, it's actually part of a bigger cycle with, uh, I, I know someone that's been slipping for the best part of 20 years and, and, and you know, I've, I've talked to him about this. We've discussed this cycle over 20 years where he drinks again, he comes back, very remorseful, firm resolution, starts taking the action, but the action drifts. And in his case, uh, I think what, what we what we figured out together um, in discussion with other people is that the actions he was taking in AA were to make him feel less guilty about the next time that he drank, but look how hard he'd been trying. And so it's very common for remorse to be a substitute for change. Like if you feel bad enough about what you've done, you're paying for it somehow, and then you needn't change or do it differently next time. It's like, it's the same as the Catholic confessional that you get, you know, you have to do your penance, then you clean the deck and then you can go and do whatever it is again. And that's obviously not tradition. That's not, uh, you know, canonical Catholic Catholicism. That's how it gets misused by people. That's obviously not the, the Catholic position, the official Catholic position. But you get the idea that remorse and guilt and shame are a way of paying the price, apparently paying the price, without actually having to pay any price, without actually having to change. Uh, and so there needs to be an entire psychic change, uh, which is what is affected by taking the first nine steps as a package deal, which then enables the last three steps to be fully activated. Psychic change, again, it's an unfortunate use of language here. It's not brilliantly written. Uh, it, it means his might, the person's mind must change, how they think must change, their entire belief system. It's better described on page, ooh, what is it, 27. If you want a good description, look at page 27 or the spiritual appendix too. Uh, Alistair, another question. Uh, actually, two. Shall I give you both of them? Uh, oh, I can see them. I can see. Them. Yeah. What brings the spree to its conclusion? Good, good question. I'm not. This. Not sure what Daniel T's question is. Inquest. Inquest. Oh, oh, oh. Yes. The, the, the yes. The coroner business. Okay. What brings the spree to its conclusion? Um. Uh. It's unclear. And that's that's the that's the tricky thing about it. If we knew, we could make it happen. There's, uh, I think I may mention. It's worth saying again, if if I have mentioned it in in Jim W's uh, workbooks, he says you need to have a clear head for this process. Uh, if you're still in your addiction, then you don't have a clear head. You can't do this. Uh, and he says we know of no program which can help such people. Chilling. Once, you, once you've lit the touch paper, don't uncork what you can't contain. Uh, it's very difficult to stop a fire. Uh, so it, but it, seem, it seems to be that, and certainly in my case, it would burn itself out. Sometimes it would burn itself out in a day once it was a year and a half spree. So it, there's a bit of a mystery there. Do you subscribe to a set number of sprees after which you withdraw sponsorship? That's a very good question. Uh, I, I, I won't go into it in too much depth because it, you could do a whole session. I think we've done a whole session on this. But the short version is, uh, I think it depends very much on the, uh, on the openness of the individual to examine themselves honestly. Um, some people are very resistant, in which case there's nothing you can say. Other people, the process does seem to involve having to go through the mill a few times. So I don't have a set. I, I go entirely on instinct. Uh, so it's different with every person, different in every case. I know lots of people have very set rules, but I don't. Um, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change, change of mind, has occurred the very 
same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever, ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. Another apparent inconsistency, easily able to control his desire for alcohol. Uh, this is from the outside. This is not an alcoholic describing himself or herself. This is the doctor. And that's so, but it must be understood. Um, you take Dr. Bob, and uh, the last page of Dr. Bob's Nightmare talks about how he still wanted to drink for three years. But in taking step three, what you're saying is what I want no longer matters. So I'm going to act in accordance with the program, even though I want to drink. Or at least he had urges to drink. Whether he wanted to drink is a, is a, is a, he, he talks about these cravings. Uh, but so you can have cravings. This is, I think this is the point. You can have cravings, but want to stay sober. And that forms the basis of a consistent decision. So from the outside, it looks like someone's controlling the desire. Internally, we know that we've surrendered our life to a system. We're going to live by this system. And what we think and feel doesn't matter. We just live by the system and then you'll be all right. Then you can survive the ups and downs of whatever goes on in one's mind. The only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules, which is the basic principles of the program. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, a doctor, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it often is not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Uh, I would say, actually, I'm going to finish the paragraph. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. When you're working with sponsees, we don't just give them the book and say, read the black bits. You've got to talk to them. Um, otherwise, you could, there's, there would be no need for meetings. There'd be no need for sponsorship. You could just give people a book and they'd sort of magically pop out well at the end of the week. Uh, an awful lot of the, the, of the progress is made through personal interaction. Course in Miracles is very clear on this, that miracles occur in interpersonal communications. They don't occur like sitting on, an, on a cushion on your own. Um, and I think the same with the recovery. But this is the important point with sponsorship. There is a point at which there is nothing more you can say. You're repeating yourself, and it's going to be between the individual and their higher power to pick a side. Do they want to pick their own side, or do they want to pick the side of the ego? So sometimes one has to get out of the way. And the motto for this paragraph, this is true for professionals, it's true for us amateurs and AA as sponsors, have the grace to know when you're out of your depth. If you find yourself getting super emotionally involved or aggravated, it's possible this is the point at which you need to step back either, you know, for, for five minutes, for an hour, a day, a week, or entirely, because there is an issue which is between the individual and their higher, and nothing you do can flick the switch for them. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. There is a little bit of mental control required. It's no good hiding behind um, powerlessness and saying, well, I'm powerless. I shall just do whatever I want. Look at me. I was powerless. Uh, in, in Alcoholic Anonymous number three, the story at the back, they say to Bill D, I think it is, you, could, um, you don't have to worry about um, you don't have to worry about staying sober forever. You just have to not drink for 24 hours. Can you do that? And he says, of course, anyone can do that. Very interesting line. So there's a little bit of a paradox here. Um, although on our own, we are powerless, having God, having friends in AA, having a program to get on with, 
having principles to live by, the four Ps, power, people, principles, and program. We're no longer powerless because we're given access to power. This requires our cooperation. It requires me to uh, exercise a certain degree of mental discipline. I'm going to get to bed tonight without a drink, no matter how I feel, no matter what happens, no matter how hopeless things are, even if I'm lying on the floor screaming, which I have done without reservation, staying sober, without reservation, anyone can stay sober, anyone can get to bed tonight without a drink, provided they're aware that whatever the situation is will at some point be relieved by working the programme. But it does require a certain amount of grit and resilience. It's not welcome news, this. I don't like saying it, but a certain amount of resilience is required in my experience and observation with sponsees. I've had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day, a, they took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests, so the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape, they were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Now here, very, this is very important. Sponsees will miss this or people who you're taking through. This is talking again about after the first drink. So there's a casualness behind the first drink. Maybe these are people who are not yet fully familiar with AA principles. Uh, this is the doctor talking about his experience of alcoholics before AA. The question is, why did they go on a bender? Why did they not just have a couple of drinks? And um, when you're working with people, the situation when people set out to get blind drunk because they'd finished their exams, for instance, or on holiday in Ibiza, um, uh, those don't prove anything. You get them to look for situations. This is what I did with myself. I looked for situations where it would have been in my immediate best interests to stay sober, or if not to stay sober, to just have a couple of drinks. Best example, hot date, where if you get drunk and get messy and sloppy and nasty, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get what you want at the end of the night, let alone a nice little domestic setup out of it. So in the, even in those situations where it was in my interests and we're not talking about interests tomorrow or next month or next year. We're talking about interests in the day. It was against my interests to get drunk. And I didn't want to get drunk because I wanted to make a good impression. I got drunk. You get people to look for those. And those are the chilling situations. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. Uh, that can be understood two ways. Tradition is understood two ways. People either kill themselves or they give up and just drink themselves to death. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. Now, before we look at this passage, I'm going to tell you it's irrelevant because what's relevant is it'll say right at the end, all these and many others have one symptom in common, they cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. That's the relevant bit. So people get very sidetracked trying to work out which of these uh, characters they are, but it's, it's of, of uh, purely academic interest. I'm going to read it because it's what we're doing, but I'm not going to dwell. Um, -dum -dum -dum. Uh, there are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They're always going on the wagon for keeps. They're over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. And so I covered that earlier. There is the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. Um, can anything be said about that? Um, uh, generally, those people don't, in my experience, last very long in sponsorship. 
There is the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. And the antidote to that, by the way, is the notion that uh, the physical craving is hardwired into one's brain so that if one has ever been liking, if one starts drinking again, the system gets reactivated. There is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom the whole chapter could be written. Then there are types entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They're often able, intelligent, friendly people. Footnote, one of my little hobby horses is the meaning of unmanageability, which we'll get to later on. But safe to say, sometimes people try to construe unmanageability to mean yeah, like the second half of step one, you have to admit you're incompetent, neurotic and disorganized unless you can admit that your life is a mess because you're really bad at living, then you can't do the second half of step one. And I've had sponsees who are more competent, organized and emotionally well balanced than most AAs at 20 years. But they are dying of alcoholism because a bit of their brain induces them to drink and when they drink, they fall downstairs or push other people down the stairs. Alcoholism is alcoholism. It doesn't require you to be a, an emotional or mental basket case on the side or be emotionally immature or any of those things at all. Um, all these and many others, although I would say I'm the basket case type, just in case we're trying to figure that one out. All these and many others have one, sim one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. Now, unfortunately, Silkworth, Silkworth contradicts himself here. Earlier, he said um, that the craving never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Here, he's much more restrictive. He says they cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. What I would say, though, I've seen this happen in my own case and in others. I've had safe slips in that nothing much happened. But that weakened the resistance. And then two slips later, that's when all hell broke loose. Uh, I've had periods of drinking start gently and then build up. I've had other ones where I hit the ground running. Uh, the antidote to any illusions here lies on page 30, where it talks about assessing the progression of one's drinking over any considerable period not with reference to what happened today. So sometimes you'll have sponsees who, you know, were drinking for 20 years and they sober for six months, they have a slip and they say, well, I just had one drink. So, you know, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. No, 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 sweetheart. You can't judge it based on a single occasion when you've got 20 years of drinking behind you as well. You've got to look at what happens over the long term. Capiche? This phenomenon, as we have suggested, a phenomenon is simply something which is observed but not yet fully understood. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, is the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It's covered before. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. I understand this to be the case today. I may be wrong on that. Um, if there is a doctor in the house, make yourself known. Uh, this immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Uh, what a great image. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. Almost what I think this is Fitzmaier. Again, I, as I said before, I'm not an AA historian, so someone feel free to correct me. He was a very key figure in early AA. Uh, wrote a, I think my, my favorite story at the back of the book is the one by Fitzmaier, um, the, the, the Southern something rather, the one written in the present tense and kind of sub um, Hemingway. Um, about uh, Faulkner rather, uh, about one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. I identify. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only, only living, one might say, to drink. Tick. 
He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan, accepted. You've got to accept the plan, not argue it every bloody inch of the way. He accepted the plan outlined in, in this book. One year later, he called to see me and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. If you're an Alanon who is attracted to rescuing orphans with big eyes and broken wings, just let that image sink in for a moment. You might have the experience of someone gets well and you suddenly realize they're no longer of interest to that Al-Anon rescuer inside you. I've had that experience where you, someone seems so interesting until they get well, they suddenly become boring. So the Al-Anon addiction is to the alcoholic, the way the alcoholic is addicted to the alcohol. Um, someone asked an acquaintance of mine, why is it that so many Al-Anons hang out in AA or with AAs? And the answer is free bar, as you know, as the equivalent of as much as you can drink. Uh, and I'll finish this page and then we'll have done the chapter. Um, his alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great and that's interesting. So we've got someone that, that wasn't too tightly wrapped. His depression was so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology. So what we do in AA has got a moral aspect, which it doesn't not have. Uh, I think the, the step four is a moral inventory, not a psychological inventory. It has psychological aspects, but it's chiefly moral. Uh, moral first, spirit, moral and spiritual first, then the mind, 90% of the mind stuff in my experience clears up, moral psychology. And we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, he's as fine a specimen of, of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through. And though he, though perhaps he came to scoff, he remain, he may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, MD. One last point. If if this in, indeed is Fitz, uh, certainly the story at the back, our southern friend, I think, is the name of the story. Someone when he when someone twelve steps him, the bloke just presents him the ideas, then leaves the room. He's just left with this simple choice, either accept it or don't. We're not going to we're not going to uh, sell it. Uh, someone's asking, what's the definition of moral? I think it's very closely linked, certainly in program terms, to the, um, uh, the St. Augustine prayer book contains uh, the sacraments of penance uh, or a formula for the sacraments of penance. And what it is. It's a great big list of human character defects ranged under the seven deadly sins as it covers everything. It's brilliantly written and pride. So that's a moral, it's a, it's a set of moral failings. But at the core of the morality is pride. And the definition of pride is putting self in the place of God as the center or main objective of my life or of some department thereof, my failure to recognize myself as a creature placed by God in a specific relationship with the rest of the world. So all in the 12 and 12, it talks about pride being the leading the parade of deadly sins and being that from which all other moral defects stem. But pride itself is a spiritual failing. It's, it's, it's seeing oneself as the center of the universe, as opposed to seeing oneself as a, an emanation and a servant of God, with God being the center of the universe. So moral and spiritual are very, very closely tied here. 
So the uh, the spiritual solution has to involve me um, becoming less concerned with myself, but concerned more with, as someone put it well, and I'm going to stop on this, being concerned not with how I feel and how other people are acting, but how what my conduct is and what other people's welfare are. So going from being concerned with my welfare and other people's conduct to my conduct and other people's welfare. And I think that's as moral as it is spiritual. It's another question. Is there such a thing as acute alcoholism? Great uh, question. Um, uh, yes, there is. There are people who drink very heavily in response to a traumatic event um, uh, and it lasts a relatively short time and then it passes again. Um, and so one does, one does see that. I've certainly seen that in other people in my life. That's all I've got, Alistair, and we've gone over eight, so i better stop there. Thank you, Tim. So, um, yeah, we'll pick it up from uh, next week where we left, where you left off there at the end of uh, Silk, uh, Dr. Silkworth's letter. Um, yeah, and I will post in also into the chat the recordings, uh, the uh, Google Drive, where you can find the recordings for this, these meetings. And um, with that, I'd like to uh, ask you to join me in the serenity prayer, if you care to unmute and join me. God. 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 Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change if I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you, Tim. Thank you.